Hello out there, and thank you for tuning in today. We're going to be learning all about blood sugar, glucose spikes, and carbohydrates. My goal for today is twofold. First, I want to help you understand that it's simply not true that all carbs are evil for all people. We can't paint them all with the same brush, and we need to consider individual situations. Second, I want to help you think through the pros and cons of intense blood glucose monitoring in people without diabetes. In case you're hearing about this for the first time, let me give you a little bit of context. Some people without diabetes have begun monitoring their blood sugar using devices that have long been used by people with diabetes. It's certainly not mainstream and it's not cheap, but this practice is gaining traction in the personalized medicine and biohacking communities. I've never tried it myself, but as someone who loves to track all sorts of things from steps to sleep, I'm certainly a prime candidate for this sort of technology. My guest today is Dr. Nicola Guess. She's an expert in diabetes prevention and management who brings clinical, scientific, and public health lenses to the table. She currently sees patients in her private clinical practice and conducts diabetes research at Oxford University. In this episode, Dr. Guest explains how diabetic and non-diabetic people respond differently to the same carbohydrates and why a glucose spike is not necessarily cause for concern. We also discuss the pros and cons of monitoring your blood sugar using continuous glucose monitors or CGMs. For more from Dr. Nicola Guess, be sure to check out our previous episodes from back in 2021 and follow her online. I will link to those resources in the show notes. Thank you again for being here today for this conversation. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Hello, Dr. Guess. Welcome back. Thank you for making time to chat again. No worries. Nice to see you again. So let's get started with a bit about you because it's been about two years since we chatted. So I want to hear your latest activities and the different hats that you're wearing. Sure. My primary job now is doing research into type 2 diabetes primarily at the University of Oxford. But I continue to see patients. I have a small private clinical practice and a couple of other research projects I'm involved with, which are all around glucose homeostasis in pre-diabetes, gestational diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And you're still doing a lot of social media stuff, which is awesome to see. (laughs) Yeah, still tweeting. And I started writing a blog for reasons that I'm sure will become apparent during this conversation. Yeah. So I invited you today to talk about glucose monitoring in people who are not diabetic and to just explore that whole area. And so I want to hear directly from you the backstory, but what inspired you to write a recent series, which was somewhat of a rant about this being taken too far in some contexts? Yeah, for sure. There's been a rise of personalized nutrition companies, which are aimed at improving the nutrition in a personalized way, usually based on differences in biology. And so I became aware of these companies and I looked into the science behind them. Like, are there real biological differences in terms of, say, our response to foods and the effect those foods have on glucose. And I was a bit skeptical about that, but I hadn't realized how much they rely on CGMs and what impact that might be having on people's dietary intake, well-being, cardiovascular risk, until I saw a patient. And she had come to see me because she had taken part in one of these personalized nutrition programs. She did the whole analysis they do, which is using a CGM measuring the gut microbiome and everything. And what those tests told her was that she was intolerant to carbohydrates. 
Now, her A1C was 5.1%, which means she is low, low, low. We really can't find any change in cardiovascular risk or anything with blood glucose control that good, right? Like 5.7 is pre-diabetes and she's 5.1. That got me realizing kind of how bad these products were, but it was the anxiety that it had caused this patient to worry about her glucose and wearing a CGM almost obsessively and worrying about any rise because people use this term glucose spikes mm-hmm. or a glucose spike without any context whatsoever. And increasingly, I've seen more and more patients. I've seen patients and the public interacting on social media, talking about glucose spikes, even when it's like a one millimole per liter rise, which is like 18 milligrams per deciliter. Like if your fasting glucose is 5.5, that's not anything to worry about. So that got me really worried about what these companies are telling people, what these CGMs are enabling people to do, thinking that they're getting insight into their glucose control. Whereas actually, I think there's a real danger. We are pathologizing normal glucose homeostasis. So we have a lot of terms you threw out there that we should probably define to help make things clear for those who are not familiar. First of all, CGM, can you explain what that is? Sure. This is a continuous glucose monitor and it's technology that has been widely used now in type 1 diabetes. And it's a wonderful technology because it takes a blood sugar reading every five minutes, 24 hours a day. It can alert people living with diabetes to sudden drops in their blood glucose. It can give them insight into how their medication is being dosed at the right time, etc., and also into their diet and general management. So it's a fantastically life-changing tool for people living with diabetes. But now that same technology is being extended to people with normal glucose control. And you also mentioned hemoglobin A1C. So can you explain what that is? Yeah. So that's a measure of your blood glucose roughly over about three months. But really in practice, it tells you what your average glucose has been and the contribution from your fasting glucose and after meal glucose. So how good that's been on average over the past three months. And I should just add, like, this is the real benefit of CGMs is that rather than waiting like annually to get an insight into what your blood glucose has been for the last three months, you can get it on a day to day basis and you can look at what your glucose is 24 hours a day. So it's great technology. It's just I think there are caveats about its use in healthy individuals. I will say that my dad actually recently got a CGM last year for his diabetes, and it's been really powerful for him to learn how different foods impact his blood sugar and how different lifestyle things like going for a walk impacts it as well. Yeah. So I want to get more into what this means for people who are not diabetic, because it's clearly a very powerful tool for people who are diabetic, but why it might be problematic to, as you say, pathologize normal glucose. So let's talk a little bit about what normal looks like and why a glucose spike might not necessarily be a problematic thing. I think it almost might be better for me to start with diabetes in the sense, what does harmful glucose homeostasis looks like and relate that to normal? I think logically that might be easier for me to explain succinctly. So effectively, in people with diabetes, high glucose, prolonged high glucose particularly, causes damage to tissues. So for example, if your fasting blood glucose is seven, what that means is your postprandial glucose is probably above 11. So it means that probably 24 hours a day, you are above seven and probably 11, probably 15. 
millimole per litre. So you have prolonged excursions way beyond a concentration that is healthy. And the way to think about what glucose or sugar does to tissues is it acts like a bit of an acid. So it can destroy nerves. It can destroy nerves to the eyes. You can get something called retinopathy is your eyes. You can get neuropathy, which is where it damages your nerves. That's microvascular disease. High blood glucose probably also contributes to macrovascular disease. And this is contributing to things like strokes and heart attacks, which sadly are the primary cause of death in people living with diabetes. So the key thing to note is how high these excursions are, that they are going up to 15 millimoles per litre. It wouldn't be unusual in a patient living with diabetes for it to go to 18 or 19, and that it doesn't just stay at that concentration for half an hour. It's up there for hours and hours and hours. So that's why we worry about glucose in diabetes, because it's a very high concentration. It stays high for a long time. And there's almost no question that that is causing some damage to tissues underneath. So if your glucose is elevated above a certain threshold for a certain fraction of the day and spends a lot of time in that zone, then that's going to probably create damage. Yeah, exactly. I don't think there's any question that that's true. For example, lots of cohort studies have looked at data from glucose tolerance tests. And this is where you're looking at the contribution, for example, between fasting and two-hour glucose. So you're fasting and basically postprandial glucose and how that relates to things like cardiovascular disease or retinopathy. And there's a study called the UK PDS study, which is a really landmark study, where basically they saw that if your two-hour glucose was 11.1 or above, almost like boom, that's where they saw retinopathy. Relating it to fasting glucose, it starts at seven. Let me see if I understood that. That When you say two hours, you mean you're previously fasting and then you consume a determined amount, and then two hours later, it's still pretty high. Exactly. So if your glucose is high two hours after a glucose tolerance test, whether it's above 7.8 millimoles per liter, that's pre-diabetes, or above 11.1, that's type 2 diabetes, the really important thing is it's two hours after you take that glucose test. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important is because the reason the glucose high is because your beta cells aren't working properly and you are insulin resistant. It is damage to the underlying pathophysiology that's causing elevated blood glucose concentrations, prolonged elevated blood glucose concentrations. So this is what we recognize as being pre-diabetes and diabetes. And there's no question that prolonged elevations of glucose are damaging to tissues. Got it. So now shall I move to normal? Let's do it. In terms of normal concentration, most people have a fasting that doesn't go above 5.6 millimoles per liter. So pre-diabetes, the definition according to the American Diabetes Association, is 5.6. Though obviously it's a cutoff, and like any cutoff, including BMI, it's imperfect. And is there much difference between what's happening pathophysiologically between 5.5 and 5.6? No, but that's what we call normal. But I think a lot of people would be more comfortable about saying normal is a fasting glucose of 5.2, for example. In postprandial terms, it is very normal when you have some carbohydrate for your blood glucose to go up. And depending on how much carbohydrate you eat and what you have with that carbohydrate, your glucose might peak anywhere between 30 minutes and probably 60, 70 minutes. That's when you get the peak and glucose should come down quite quickly afterwards. The reason that the glucose tolerance test is quite useful for looking at glucose homeostasis in a standardized way is that what you see in people with normal glucose tolerance, glucose goes up 30 minutes, it goes up to typically a maximum of 7.8. So at 30 minutes, it's at 7.8. 
But guess what? Comes down again really quickly. So you're back to normal by two hours. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've had a normal glucose test. So maybe when I was pregnant or something, but so normally they would test you two times at 30 minutes and at two hours or just the two hour test? Typically clinically for screening for type 2 diabetes, they would do two hours. Okay. They don't know how high it went. They just know what it came down to two hours later. Yeah. It's not a perfect test because lots of people have kind of said, well, hold on a second, you are missing the 30 minutes. But in general, like if your blood glucose is high fasting or creeping up or high two hour, that's the strongest signal we have that something's wrong. In addition, both of those two things contribute to your hemoglobin A1c. So again, that's why when we're thinking about a healthy population and their risk of type 2, the fact remains that the best evidence we have and the way of tracking people long term in the most cost effective manner is an A1c measure. Okay. Again, so a normal person would have, maybe the spike wouldn't be quite as high and then it would come down faster than a diabetic person. Yes, exactly. And one of the things if someone is having, or I mean, again, the way that the OGTT is so helpful is that you can make comparisons between populations. And so again, it's about the glucose going up and coming down. But what's become really challenging, I mean, useful, but it currently is a challenge because we don't have much long-term data is that CGMs are showing us glucose control in a way we've never seen it before. Mm -hmm. And so what is really hard is to say, well, what's normal? Because we know what people with a hemoglobin A1c of 5.1 look like when they do a GTT. And we can be very confident because we have a bunch of data looking forward 10 years about the risks as the A1c goes up, as the fasting glucose goes up and the two hour glows up. But when it comes to for the CGM data, when people are saying, well, what's too high? When I eat something, if I eat a pizza with 120 grams of carbohydrate, what should I be worried about? Or in fact, what should I be worried about if I have a small bowl of cereal? Is there a glucose concentration that I should be worried about? And I think the fact is right now, we don't know what that answer is. These continuous monitoring devices have been used in people with diabetes or maybe pre-diabetes, but they haven't been used in the general population. And so we don't really have guidelines for exactly what normal looks like. Absolutely. And there's another really key factor when I talk about this in my blog is that people have these numbers in their head that they know are diagnostic for diabetes and pre-diabetes. So for example, they'll know that a two-hour glucose of 7.8 is pre-diabetes. And like I said before, it's that high at two hours because your beta cell aren't working properly and you've got some insulin resistance. That's why it's high two hours afterwards. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong whatsoever that your glucose gets to 7.8 after you have some carbohydrate, 30 minutes after you have carb. And what I see in my practice people doing is they panic about these diagnostic numbers for diabetes and they worry about a seven. So that's why in my blog series and in this chat, I always want to start with, well, what's diabetes? And I always like to mention, because people think like, because diabetes is diagnosed at seven, people think it's like this magic, scary number. It's this threshold And if you cross it, all of the bad consequences of diabetes are going to happen. Whereas actually, like the reason, as far as I know, we have that cutoff of seven is because they basically looked at what the two hour glucose was in people who had a fasting glucose of seven. And basically anyone who had a fasting glucose of seven or more had a two hour glucose of 11.1 or more. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that seven's this awful number and bad stuff happens. It reflects the 11.1. And again, like I said at the beginning, if your blood glucose is 11.1 two hours after having 75 grams of glucose, you can bet that it's running that high, if not higher, probably most of the day. Right. 
Do you see people basically trying to mimic the glucose tolerance tests as well? And I mean, are people trying to like biohack that and do it in maybe a little more defined way? Like, let me do basically a fast and then feed myself something in the morning and then see what it is two hours later. I have had people do that. And I don't think it's a terrible idea because at least it's better than having a meal, maybe four hours after a meal that then influences what you have at that meal. Or maybe like after exercise and exercise can influence what your CGM looks like. The thing about a GTT, if someone is mimicking it at home and they are fasting from the night before, just having water and they do that, I mean, I don't think it's a terrible idea. The concern is, though, that because, I mean, there's such variability in a GTT, which is done in a standardized fashion in collecting blood from a vein, the repeatability of a GTT is really poor. You can give a glucose tolerance test to someone one week and they'll come back as having prediabetes. Two weeks later, you do it again and they're normal. So it's very, very variable. Then when you throw in some of the limitations of CGMs, like not reading glucose properly, placement issues and so on and so forth. It's not perfect, but if someone's kind of doing that over time and if their fasting glucose is getting close to seven consistently doing that, that raises red flags. Right. So it's not a horrible idea if you're doing it in a super controlled way and you're truly mimicking what you'd be doing in a clinical lab, but you still should take that with a grain of salt. What's completely problematic and is when you're making these apples to oranges comparisons and you're just looking at your peak after a meal and trying to compare that to like a two hour glucose tolerance test result. Yeah, exactly. And again, like I said, because people think seven is diabetes, I don't want to have diabetes. They don't want their glucose to ever get to seven. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're not understanding that it's completely normal to go above that. The issue is how quickly do you bounce back from that? So you really kind of have to have a sense of that dynamic to know whether there's a problem. Yeah, exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about what else impacts a glucose curve, because I think there's this general idea out there that's been around for a few decades now that all carbs are bad. And yet there's a lot of nuance, I guess, that's underappreciated about the difference between types of carbs. So maybe I don't know what the best way to tackle this one is to maybe talk about what sort of dietary recommendations you make for people that do want to have healthier glucose control. And maybe you can link that to why all carbs are not necessarily equal. Yeah, sure. In terms of the effect of carbohydrate on blood glucose, one of my concerns, even before we begin that conversation, is that especially in normal glucose tolerance, there's no evidence at all that I've seen not convincing that the glucose itself is a problem at all. Even if you were to have an absolute ton of carbohydrates and your glucose goes up really high, comes straight back down. I've been in this field a long time. I did a lot of extra research for my blog series and I can't find anything convincing that even that's a problem, let alone a normal excursion. And so before I even begin this conversation, like one of my concerns about focusing on the glucose alone is that there are always trade-offs in terms of what foods you might be adding to flatten the glucose, but it also ignores the non-glycemic effects of carbohydrates. For example, when we're thinking about for example, low glycemic carbohydrates. Now, one of the reasons many carbohydrates are low is because they are digested either not at all or slowly. So what you then happen is you get intact carbohydrate getting to the colon where it's fermented, which is thought to be beneficial in many ways. Now, when you're thinking about the health effect of that carbohydrate, it might be the colonic effects of it are having the positive health outcomes. Whereas the glycemic reduction that you would see from the fact that it's not digestible is just a marker for that carbohydrate. Mm. Thinking about what carbohydrates do for us and what they don't do 
One example of a carbohydrate lowering glucose but being beneficial, like I said, is fiber. Great. But what other carbohydrates do, for example, sucrose, it also is fairly low glycemic because half of sucrose is fructose. And in fact, if you compare some starches to sucrose, you get a lower glucose response with sucrose. Mm-hmm. But again, in contrast to the fiber, which is low glycemic and beneficial, sucrose is low glycemic. But if you have too much of it, it's probably going to cause some metabolic derangements, particularly if you have a lot of it in a liquid. Those are two examples of the structure of carbohydrate having the same effects on the glucose curve, more or less, but they have totally distinct effects on cardiometabolic risk factors. And so this is one of my concerns about CGMs, because it's like, I would almost much rather in NGT, we give advice, which is have more intact grains, have more legumes, have more slowly digested carbohydrates, even reduce the serving size of them, rather than focus on the carbohydrates that lower your glucose response. You're encouraging people to think about healthfulness more broadly than just what does it do to my blood glucose? Yeah, my thinking right now, this is new technology, it hasn't been tested. My thinking is right now, I don't think we need CGMs in NGT to tell us how to eat healthily. In fact, I think it could lead us down the wrong path. That's one of my concerns. I'm open to the suggestion that CGMs could be some kind of a useful behavioral tool. I think that can and should be explored. But right now, I think any use of CGM in people with normal glucose tolerance should come with lots of caveats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to spend a little bit more time teasing apart some of the different types of carbohydrates, because I think there's just a lot of misconceptions there. And personally, one of my pet peeves is this notion that such and such food is healthy because it only has natural sugars. You know, it's sweetened with maple syrup. Therefore, this becomes a healthy dessert. Maybe can we talk about just sugars and the difference between them? You talked a little bit about sucrose being glucose and fructose, but maybe just step back on simple sugars and then we could talk about complex carbs a bit. Sure. I mean, so simple sugars are monosaccharides and disaccharides. They're like the smaller molecules. They tend to be sweeter. So these are sucrose, fructose are the general ones within the diet. Sucrose can be found naturally in fruits. So can fructose in very small amounts though sucrose is table sugar. So some of the benefits of sucrose and fructose, like I said, potentially is that they are very sweet, they are nice, and they have a minimal effect on blood sugar, but they are perfectly fine as far as everything I've ever read when it comes in a fruit. And that's probably a consequence of the amount in a fruit because it's, it's probably about five to seven grams max of sucrose in most fruits or fructose. When it comes with the fiber and all the intact food matrix, that also slows down the digestion of the carbohydrate. And the third thing is that probably some of the polyphenols, the phytonutrients within fruits, limit absorption of the glucose. And then plus, you get all of the benefits, the micronutrients and the phytonutrients of fruit. So when we're talking about sucrose or fructose being bad, that's an oversimplification. There's no concern. Certainly people with normal glucose tolerance ever to be worried about fruit, ever. People talk about the role of fruit and limiting fruit, even in diabetes. I have patients on low carbohydrate diets and they prefer to avoid any high carb or high sucrose or high fructose fruits. I don't think it's necessary because I think if you had one piece of fruit after a full meal, I would doubt the impact it would have on your blood glucose. But if people with diabetes want to limit them because that's how they want to manage their diabetes, I just encourage lower glycemic fruits. 
And how do you feel about this? I know some of the nutritional guidelines have started to call out added sugars as a separate thing. Do you think that makes sense from a diabetes perspective, both for non people who don't have diabetes as well to be limiting added sugars? I think the concern with added sugars is you're adding in calories one, you're adding in an ingredient which in excess probably has cardiometabolic implications. And two, it's usually a marker for a product which is high in calories, heavily processed, high in fat, and obviously now high in sugar. So I think that's reasonable because people talk about is sugar good or bad? And it's really about the dose. This is why we have no concern about naturally occurring fructose and sucrose because the way it's found in food, to my knowledge, it's never been shown to be problematic in whole foods. It's when you have a liter of cola a day or you know something with high fructose corn syrup or something with added sugars in. So I think added sugar is a good marker for whether a food is healthful or not. Right. But a lot of it really is down to the company that the sugar keeps, right? Is it in the company of a bunch of nutrients in an apple or is it in the company of really not much nutritional value? Yeah, agree. And also like, so one of the main culprits, I think, is things like yogurts, where I mean, a yogurt, if it's unsweetened, could be a super healthy food full of micronutrients that lots of people are deficient in, magnesium, potassium. It has naturally occurring sugar lactose. So that is a sugar, but it's very not glycemic. There's only four grams of lactose per 100 mil in a dairy product. So you just ruin that healthful product when you add added sugar in. It's so unnecessary. So I do think added sugar as a label is great because like you said, it distinguishes, is it found naturally in a food which already has a lot of wonderful things that are good for us? versus is it in a product which it's either ruining because the yogurt was healthful anyway, or it's cookies, for example. So can we take a same sort of lens to complex carbs and then talking about maybe whole grains versus refined carbs and all the different, like how you think about the healthfulness of those different categories? So let me just finish one of the monosaccharides, one of the sugars, which is extremely important that we missed is glucose. And the reason I didn't mention it is because glucose is found naturally in foods like fruit and things. The Aura Glucose Tolerance Test uses glucose and 75 grams of it. And here's the reason. I mentioned that sucrose and fructose are quite slowly absorbed because they're metabolized differently. The thing about glucose is as a monosaccharide, it is absorbed so, so quickly. And that's one of the reasons why they use it in a glucose tolerance test. If you take glucose in its purest form, it really makes your glucose go as high as possible. And the reason why that's a useful introduction to starches is because starches are basically structures containing tons of the monosaccharide glucose. Right. We wouldn't normally consume those glucose molecules on their own individually, but that's actually what complex carbs are made up of as a a chain of them, essentially. Fruits will have a small amount of glucose in. Some of them do, but certainly with starches, what they're made of is glucose, but it's not glucose on its own. It's glucose in structures which can be packed to varying degrees of tightness. Okay. So carrying on to the difference between the healthfulness, I guess, of brown rice versus white rice or whole wheat bread versus white bread. And how much does that matter? You know, how much does the glucose profile matter versus other aspects of those foods? You could do a whole podcast on that question. Yeah. So the first thing to think about is how those glucose molecules are structured. So this is maybe the first thing that impacts on the digestibility of starches. And this is whether it's an amylose or an amylopectin dominant starch. So for example, amylose is more tightly packed as a structure. So it's more like a lattice. So what that means is the enzymes have to fight really, really hard to get to the bonds, to break down the bonds between glucose and to release the glucose. So if you have a starch, which is amylose 
dominant, so the structure is primarily amylose, that will be digested more slowly. Things like cooking, heating and heating with water and things can disrupt those links and make it more easily digestible. Conversely, if a starch is amylopectin dominant, that's a more spread out structure. And what that means is the bonds are more spread out and the enzymes can get to them and break it down more quickly. So that's one of the things that can influence the digestibility of starch. Can you give some examples of both those categories? Like a potato would be a good example from memory of an amylose dominant starch, which you then cook and you can break up to become more digestible. Is that one of the main factors driving this glycemic index, why the same amount of carbohydrates can have like a different response to you? Or is glycemic, I can't remember, the glycemic load and glycemic index, all the different metrics. Yeah, one of the things that influences the glycemic index, because the glycemic index is basically a measure of how quickly a food containing carbohydrate is digested and absorbed. So one of those things will be the digestibility of starch depending on how much amylose versus amylopectin it has. And things like, for example, cooking pasta and letting it cool again, change the structure of the starch that influence whether enzymes can get to it. So that's one of the things. Then we come to fiber and any of the structure surrounding the starch. And so this is where brown rice, for example, is different to white rice. Because if you have this hard, indigestible structure around the rice, guess what? The enzymes can't get to it or they can't get to it as quickly. And so it's worth mentioning that the structure around the rice is also made of carbohydrate, but they are indigestible carbohydrates. The reason for that is that human enzymes cannot digest the bonds in between the monosaccharides within those structures. I just want to back up for a second, make sure people got the big picture context here was that these starch-based foods have long chains of glucose, but they're not going to show up in your blood until they get chopped into little pieces by these things called enzymes. And the structure of the food is going to impact the accessibility of that long chain of glucose to those enzymes, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you've talked about just now that in the case of whole grains, those glucose molecules, the sugars are encased by something that's hard to access. Yeah, exactly. And another thing to think about when we're thinking about other things that influence the digestibility is the rest of the food matrix. And so this is where there are other ingredients within that food. Fruit's a great example that impact the absorption or the digestibility of that carbohydrate. So an example is polyphenols that we think work along the intestine to either stop or slow the absorption of the glucose from fruit, for example. So there are lots more contextual factors that influence digestibility and absorption of glucose, which influence the glycemic index. But you mentioned the load. And it might be worth just clarifying that the load is about the amount. So it's almost taking into account the digestibility and absorption plus the amount of carbohydrate together. So something with a really high glycemic load would be really easily digestible and you'd have an absolute ton of it. Let's bring this back to dietary recommendations. So in your practice, what sorts of advice do you give to diabetics and pre-diabetics and how much of that applies to people without diabetes? For me, it is quite different because like I said, we know unequivocally, certainly in diabetes, that glucose itself causes measurable damage and is certainly a risk factor for micro and macrovascular disease. That's why we care about it in the management of diabetes. But of course, like I also mentioned, sadly, the thing that causes death in people living with diabetes is macrovascular disease, which is why we care just as much about blood pressure and about lipids 
as we do about glucose. So I do focus on glucose in my practice in type 2 diabetes. And one of the great things is that now we have CGMs, it's really rewarding for patients to see the impact of the dietary advice on their blood glucose in the short term. And so I mentioned about, I think CGMs could be a useful behavioral tool. And I think definitely we can utilize this technology to support behavior change and empowerment of all of those things in people living with diabetes. Because right now we can't measure easily things like triglyceride and cholesterol at home. You can get kind of some point of care tests. You can get dry blood spot now for some of these things, but they're quite expensive. They're not especially accessible. The thing about CGMs is the technology is pretty good. We can measure it, so we do. So in my practice, specifically talking about diabetes here, and generally type 2 because type 1 is also different. In type 2, I generally focus on reducing the glycemic load. We talked about that, reducing the amount of carbohydrate coming in at the same time as increasing the amount of protein in the diet. And the reason why protein is important is because protein breaks down to amino acids and it's the amino acids that nudge the beta cell to produce insulin. And it's really important to note that I actually think based on the data that's available is what's working here to lower glucose. And this combination unequivocally lowers glucose is not the reduction in glycemic load per se. It's the fact that you're increasing the protein. And of course, just to clarify, if you just increase the protein, you'd be increasing calories. So whenever I increase protein, as I do in type 2 diabetes patients, usually you want something's got to give. And I usually recommend taking out carbohydrate. Then for people without diabetes, it's okay if you consume carbohydrates because you will be able to clear them sort of by definition. You don't have a problem clearing that out of your blood. So you're not going to have the sustained blood levels of glucose that you would have in diabetic if you ate the same food. So in healthy people, exactly. And so the reason why I don't focus on glucose in patients without diabetes is it's almost like worrying about a marker that has no relevance, whereas high blood pressure or blood pressure, which is creeping up to an extent that could be harmful, is as dominant, if not more so. So it seems strange to me to worry about glucose elevations, minor transient glucose elevations, when there's no evidence at all that's a risk factor. Whereas things like pre-hypertension or hypertension, elevated LDL cholesterol, those things are far more important in my view to keep focused on. Not only do I think the glucose response to foods and to diet in normal glucose tolerance tells you nothing about those things because it doesn't, I think a glucose-centric approach could potentially worsen those things because people might be choosing foods based on the response to glucose alone. I mean, now I should say I am completely open to the idea that CGMs with healthy structured education, for example, to minimize consumption of really highly digestible carbohydrates. And I say that not because the glucose response from a highly processed carbohydrate per se is bad, but it's just those foods could have probably have long-term impacts on the rest of metabolism. They're probably not especially filling. I think we have emerging evidence that we eat them more quickly, which means we eat more of them. So in other words, you might be able to use CGM as a tool to reduce intake of things that could be leading to overconsumption of foods in the long term. And but CGM is the tool that you use to think about portion size and things like that. So I'm not absolutely against CGM in people without diabetes. I just worry that without structured advice and without clear guidance, people are going to get some of this a bit wrong. 
there's certainly an individual element here of people respond differently to tracking and some people might get overly obsessive and have it impact their mental health and other people might find it as a useful behavioral nudge, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where there are several things I think public health and healthcare professionals can do is, I mean, number one, don't tell people they need to be worried about consuming blueberries, as we've seen in the past couple of weeks. In addition to not scaring people about glucose spikes that have no meaning, I mean, number one, like companies like Levels and Zoe are doing this. And it's just unfair because it's causing confusion and it's causing anxiety. First of all, don't do that stuff. But the second thing I think we can do is emphasize it's very normal for glucose to go up after you eat something with carbohydrate in. We don't yet know what pathological looks like in terms of CGM. We're beginning to get data on what normal glucose excursions look like in a free living situation. And I think that could be useful to get out there. And I think three is thinking about, it's about the whole diet. Like I said, I deliberately use words like we're measuring glucose because we can. It doesn't mean we should. And it doesn't mean we should forget that postprandial triglycerides, blood pressure, LDL cholesterol don't matter just as much. And CGMs tell us nothing about those. And so what do you see as the role of carbohydrates in an overall healthy diet? I mean, I think, first of all, let's talk about outcomes. What outcome are we referring to here? Because the extent to which we worry about carbohydrates or think they're relevant depends on whether you're talking about obesity as an outcome, diabetes as an outcome, everything else. I mean, I think the overwhelming evidence, and people don't like to hear this because they want it to be more complicated, is that if you stay a healthy weight and you exercise a lot, you don't smoke and you don't drink too much, and probably the evidence suggests not at all, but we won't go there. That's the best you can do. That's the most we know in terms of real confidence about well-being, whether it's longevity, cardiovascular health, etc. There are smaller things that probably have an impact, and these probably have an impact in tiny different ways over the course of a life. And it's about having whole foods as close to their intact form. I think that's reasonable advice because I think it slows eating. I think this is one of the reasons we worry about ultra-processed foods. So it slows eating. Probably there might be benefits in terms of gut health, some very subtle signals coming through about inflammation, appetite signaling, and things like that. I think that's reasonable. We have some pretty good evidence that high fiber, high plant-based foods can help with insulin sensitivity. But let me emphasize here the effects of all of these food components on insulin sensitivity are dwarfed by adiposity and exercise. I think that's important to note. So in terms of carbohydrate, I think it's very pragmatic, reasonable advice to say for many reasons, focus on the most unprocessed, intact carbohydrates we can. That's excellent. I love that you're always about trying to focus on the factors that matter most. And I feel like in the health space, we see so much focus on the weeds and the minutiae and not enough on the big pillars. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm sure amongst those pillars, we would probably include sleep and stress as well. Yeah, absolutely. I miss those. Yeah, really important too. We covered a lot today. Thank you very much for your time. I know that we covered a lot of ground today and I appreciate you going in all sorts of directions with this conversation. So hopefully it made sense to everyone out there. And we look forward to answering your questions in future podcasts if there's an opportunity that arises because we are still learning as we go here, right? I agree. We started this talking about like my series on CGMs and it's not because I think they are a useless technology. It's that I think that technology is being exploited to sell a product and it's being done with messaging that I think could be causing harm. And I think we should be worried about that. Are there any resources you would recommend for getting 
really credible information. I want to give a shout out to your blog and your resources, but also what sorts of resources do you recommend to others, professional or other online tools? Here's the thing, and I think this is so relevant for CGMs. I think right now they're so new, we don't have any guidance. But I'm hoping, I really do hope that the American Diabetes Association, American Heart Association, or the European or Canadian equivalent can put together something which is a real consensus statement on this is normal. This is not anything you need to worry about. And as we get more data in, giving people guidance about, okay, so it looks like you have higher glucose excursions than we thought. They seem to be going on for a bit longer. Maybe go and get an A1C test to make sure everything's okay. I think we'll get to a point where we do have more data and we can provide people with proper guidance. Well, thank you for all you do to push this field forward and to bust misinformation out there. Thank you. (laughs) Be sure to check out Dr. Guess's resources and hopefully we'll continue this conversation. Thank you very much. 